There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, we're here again dealing with some volatility. Yeah. Yeah, for, for a change. A, for a change. Yeah. Yeah. So we came out of a very volatile 2022. And after, well, before that, we came out of hyper volatility due to COVID in 2020. And now we find ourselves in the midst of a new run of volatility. Right on. And as such, last week when we did our, our show, we talked about the hawkish tones of the U.S. Federal Reserve and how it looked like they're going to raise interest rates in the U.S. next week. That's right. But based on what's been going on just these last few days, that tone has changed somewhat, hasn't it? It has. It has. And trying to predict what the Federal Reserve is going to do is kind of, it's a bit of a gamble. But they are aware of of what's going on and, and they make decisions based on what's happening at the time. Right. And this current version of volatility is being fueled by the collapse of a couple of U.S. banks that occurred. The most significant one being Silicon Valley Bank. Had you ever heard of Silicon Valley Bank prior to this, Greg? No, I hadn't, Colin. I hadn't either. Turns out a friend of mine was actually, his cousin was the president of Silicon Valley Bank Canada. Really? Yeah, interesting, eh? Anyways, let's start this segment by saying that Canadian banks, one of which we work at, are quite a bit different than U.S. banks. That's right. Right? So I don't want listeners to be overly worried about their deposits at these Canadian banks. It's not to say that things can't happen, but you know, having gone through the global financial crisis Back in 2008, 2009, this just doesn't feel the same. No, it doesn't. And we do have deposit insurance in place, the same way that the U.S. has deposit insurance. So in Canada, this is through the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation. I sound like a newfie there for a second, insurance. (laughs) In the U.S., that'd be through the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, right? And as a matter of fact, the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank, they are being made whole by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, And they're not the ones that have much to worry about, as even the U.S. government has come out and said that they're going to make all depositors whole, right? It's the bondholders of that bank that should be very worried, and the stockholders should basically accept that their stock investment in that bank is probably worth zero, right? That's right. Yeah, it's looking that way. So, Greg, I got a question for you. With this failure, this U.S. bank failure, I started looking at, well, how many banks have actually failed? in the U.S. in the last 20 or so years. I was just curious, right? And I know I kind of shared this with you the other day, but just play along. So, Greg, do you know how many banks have failed in the U.S. since 2001? Well, and I do happen to know, but here's the interesting thing, is I would say that since the global financial crisis, I have not heard of a U.S. bank failure between 2008, with Washington Mutual being the, the biggest one, And last week when we started talking about Silicon Valley Bank. So you would think that because of no news, there hadn't been that many bank failures. There's been lots of bank failures. So what's the number? 563. I ask that question of a lot of people these days. Like how many banks do you think have failed in the U.S. in the last 22 years? 
And, you know, the typical answer is like, I don't know, five, ten. And I'll say way higher. And then they'll be like 10,000. Well, no, there weren't 10,000 <laughs> banks that failed. But but 563 is a pretty significant number. That includes the most current banks. So probably two-thirds of that, as you mentioned, did occur in the global financial crisis. But that means as much as one-third of the bank failures occurred in other time periods in those 22 years. Yeah, that's like over 180 banks. Yeah, so it's not that it doesn't happen, right? But this is where I was going with, it seems different in Canada. We just don't hear of a lot of bank failures in Canada, but we don't have the same system. We don't, we don't. And we have a much smaller number of banks and even including banks, credit unions, other financial institutions. It's a much more concentrated industry here than it is in the U.S. But let's talk about Silicon Valley Bank because it was the, I think it was the 16th largest bank in the U.S., up until last week, right? How did this happen? Like, that's the question many are asking. How did they go bad so quickly? So let's walk through it. And thanks to Reuters, who provided some of this information to help us do the timeline. When you trace back, well, where did it all start? Basically, the shutdown of Silicon Valley Bank can be traced back to the U.S. Federal Reserve raising interest rates and souring the risk appetite of investors. So interesting that something that was done strictly as a way to fight inflation, that is raising interest rates, can have lots of effects that you don't think of immediately. Well, actually, part of that monetary policy discussion of raising interest rates is to create unemployment. I suppose they've right. successfully done that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about what happened like stepwise. And so the first thing, as I mentioned, is the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. And they've been raising interest rates for the last year, basically in, in their bid to fight inflation. And when money becomes more expensive, so, you know, as we've seen in Canada, bank prime rate has gone from, I think it was 2.45% a little over a year ago to 6.7% today. Investors have a lot less appetite for risk because the money is becoming more expensive. And this increase in interest rates had a big impact on some of the technology startups, mainly the primary types of clients of Silicon Valley Bank, because it made their investors more averse to risk. It's right in the name. Exactly. Like it's no surprise where this bank started. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And okay, so the next step, there were some Silicon Valley banks, there were clients that were facing a cash crunch because as higher interest rates caused the market for initial public offerings to shut down for many startups, private fundraising cost more. You know, there's lots of venture capital firms out there that deal with technology startups. So some Silicon Valley bank clients had to start pulling money out to meet their liquidity needs. And what this resulted in is Silicon Valley Bank had to look for ways last week, basically, to meet the customers' withdrawals because banks don't keep on hand enough cash to meet all of the money they have on deposit from their customers. So in Canada, we call that tier one capital requirements, right? That's right. And there's also a reserve ratio, a certain amount of money relative to the deposits that the banks have to keep liquid and on hand. Okay. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about how banks operate. So what happens? So now clients are starting to pull their money out. Silicon Valley Bank needs to have cash available to meet those withdrawals. So what they had to do is they had to sell out some of their own investments at a loss. Okay, so it turns out that Silicon Valley Bank had a large bond portfolio that consisted mainly of U.S. You know, U.S. Treasury bonds. Very low risk. Very low risk. And of course, 
a lot of these bonds had been issued or acquired back when interest rates were extremely low. So what happens, as we've talked many times on this podcast, is that when interest rates go up, the prices of bonds come down. And so essentially, Silicon Valley Bank had to sell their bond portfolio or part of their bond portfolio at a loss. Okay, and so... How big of a loss was it? They recognized a $1.8 billion loss. Seems significant. It's a big number. And because of that, they had to fill that hole by trying to raise capital. Typically, they raise capital through selling stock. They're selling more shares in their company. So that Thursday of the week that Silicon Valley Bank went under, they announced they were going to sell two and a quarter billion dollars in common shares and preferred convertible shares to fill the funding hole. And obviously, when it became public knowledge that they were trying to raise two and a quarter billion dollars, the common shares ended up trading down 60% because investors were worried that withdrawals may force the bank to raise even more capital, thus diluting the value of their shares even further. So as they're trying to do this stock sale, many more Silicon Valley bank clients pulled their money out from the bank on the advice of various venture capital firms, such as the Future Fund. And this is just a big venture capital fund. And this spooked a lot of investors, basically, with regards to the stock sale and and investors who were planning to buy stock in the company essentially lost their interest and the the stock raising effort collapsed late on Thursday that. So it's, it's like somebody trying to sell you a boat that's sinking. That's right. So you can see that clearly the value of their assets had dropped dramatically because they held a lot of government bonds. They were forced to sell at a loss. They needed to increase their funding, you know, to meet the capital requirements. And they weren't able to do it by raising money through a stock sale. And of course, this is all very public. And so as people with deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, got more wind of this, and through Twitter and other social media, there was quite a mad scramble for people to withdraw their funds while they still could. So on the Friday of that week, Silicon Valley Bank had failed in their attempt to raise funding, including through the sale of the company. And later in the same day, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, announced that Silicon Valley Bank was shut down and placed it under receivership. And they also announced that they would be looking to sell all of Silicon Valley Bank's assets and the future dividend payments obviously would be made not to shareholders, but rather to uninsured depositors. So it happens pretty quickly, you know, and I think what happened is within a 24 hour period, thanks to Twitter and all of the social media available to Silicon Valley startup companies and other companies who are all obviously extremely well connected to each other, there was something like $40 billion of withdrawals made within 24 hours, which would sink many a bank if that kind of withdrawal was made so quickly. Yeah, for sure. So I thought it might make sense just to talk a little bit about how banks operate, because when a bank goes into receivership like Silicon Valley Bank did, it's because the value of their liabilities, the money they owed, essentially far exceeded the value of their assets or what they owned. And when you think about it, I mean, that's the same for any business. Any business whose liabilities exceed their assets usually become insolvent or are insolvent. And so it's probably useful just to think for a little bit about how do banks make money? Well, banks make money in a few different ways. But most people know banks as places where you you go when you have money saved up and you have money in a checking account that you use to pay bills and things like that. But you might also have money in a savings account where you're accumulating funds that you want to use at a future time. And the bank is happy to take 
those deposits from you and pay you some amount of interest on those deposits. Those deposits are a liability of the bank. It's money that the bank owes because you've put the money in with them, but you expect to get that money back. And so that's a liability of the bank. Then what the bank will do, though, is they will take part of that money that you have on deposit with them, and they'll use that money to either make investments to earn a return from, or they will loan that money out to you because the other reason why people go to the bank might be to borrow money to either buy a home with a mortgage or to buy a car with a car loan or a line of credit or some such thing. But these days you got to buy groceries with a line of credit. Yeah, exactly. So when the bank lends you money, that becomes an asset of the bank. So an asset of the bank is the money that they've got outstanding with you in the form of a loan. You owe it back to them. So that's that's an asset of the bank, as are any of the investments that they've made with that money. So that's how banks operate. You as as an individual, you go to the bank to either use it for checking account purposes to pay your bills, you use it to save money, to purchase something later on, or you use it to borrow money so that you can buy something that you need. And so the banks earn money in a couple of different ways. Well, a few different ways, actually. So first of all, they make money from what they call the spread. And the spread is just the difference in the interest rate that they pay you on your deposits compared to the interest rate that they receive on loans they make. So clearly, if you go and borrow money from the bank, you're going to be paying them a higher rate of interest then they will pay you on the deposits you have in a savings account or a checking account. And so that's called the spread, and that's one of the main ways that they earn money. They also earn interest on the securities they hold. So as we talked about, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they invested in government bonds. And it just so happens, so they're earning interest on those bonds, but it just so happens the value of those bonds declined dramatically when interest rates went up. Well, actually, that portfolio, I was just looking at the number, was yielding 1.79% at the time when they had to sell. And treasury yields at that time were 3.9%. Exactly. So yeah, big loss. Big loss. And lastly, banks, as we all know, earn fees for customer services, such as checking accounts, loan servicing, you know, sales of other products. And anybody that's ever walked into a bank knows the various ways that they earn money. Insurance. That's right. (laughs) Is another one. Yeah. So banks earn money in a variety of ways. But it all comes down to what is the value of their assets, meaning the loans that they have outstanding, the investments that they have, and what's the value of their liabilities, the amount of money they have on deposit by depositors, and the money they owe to creditors. So if they've issued bonds, they owe that money back to the bondholders. But the interesting thing is a perfectly solvent bank that has well-capitalized balance sheet and meets all the reserve requirements of the regulators could still become insolvent. And it becomes insolvent because of a bank run. Yeah. So what is a bank run, you say? That's exactly what I say. Yeah. Well, you kind of described it like SVB went through a bank run of when $40 billion left their asset base in 24 hours, right? So a bank run is when a large number of customers of a bank or other financial institution simply withdraw their deposits at the same time because of fears about the bank's solvency, which is exactly what happened, right? I mean, as SVB was trying to issue, sold off their bond portfolio to try to cover their short-term requirements, trying to sell equities to further cover them, and then it collapsed, it left them with no way of funding it, right? Exactly. So as more people withdraw their funds, the probability of default increases, which in turn can cause more people to withdraw their deposits. You can see how this goes, right? Yes. 
So in extreme cases, the bank's reserves just aren't sufficient to cover the withdrawals. And that's exactly what happened to SVB. But how bank runs work, as I said, it's a large number of people making withdrawals from the same institution at the same time. And it's the result of panic, usually, rather than true insolvency. So you will often see when these things occur, somebody step in and limit withdrawals or limit access to the deposits, right? In this case, it happened so quickly, I don't think there was any saving it, right? That's right. And if you think about it, what happened to the banks with a bank run would be no different than what happens when a bank, you know, if you're a business and you have a a demand loan with a bank and the bank has lent you money, and if all of a sudden out of the blue, the bank demanded their loan be repaid, your business might not be able to come up with the cash to repay that loan at one time. And so the same way a bank could force a business into insolvency by demanding a loan be repaid at an inopportune time, the same thing happened to the bank itself with all these depositors demanding their money at one time. Another example of this might be toilet paper during How COVID. So? Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> Going to Costco during the depths of COVID and not ever being able to find toilet paper. Right? So, you're, so you're talking about the great toilet paper run of 2020. Yeah. But it's kind of the same thing. Most institutions have a set limit as how much they store in their vaults each day, which you you just described earlier. And these limits are set based on a need and for security reasons. And at the same time, those banks are required to keep a minimum amount of cash reserves on hand. And that's what I mentioned earlier about the tier one capital requirements. And one of the things that came out of the global financial crisis was in Canada anyways, or Canada, as I like to say, those tier one capital requirements were increased by our governments, right, for our banks. Because banks typically keep only a small percentage of deposits as cash on hand. They must increase their cash position to meet like major withdrawal demands, right? So one method a bank uses to increase cash on hands, as you mentioned, is to sell off its assets. And that's what SVB did. They sold their bond portfolio at a loss. And that just triggered more fear, right? And triggered more withdrawals. So examples of bank runs in modern history could be, well, just what they've gone through, right? But they're often associated with things like the Great Depression, you know? And so in the wake of that 1929 stock market crash, I don't know if you remember that day, Greg, do you remember that day? I don't. I don't have heard of it, but I don't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Neither of us are around for that day, but... American depositors began to panic and seek refuge in holding things like physical cash. And there was actually a succession of bank runs on thousands of banks occurring in the early 1930s and basically a domino effect, which you can see happening, right? It's like, I went to Costco, there's no toilet paper. I better go to Safeway. No, none there either. (laughs) It's not, not a good example, but kind of the same thing, right? So in response to the bank runs of the 1930s, the U.S. government set up several regulatory mechanisms to try to prevent these bank runs. And that's when they did establish the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now, currently today, it insures depositors up to $250,000 per banking institution. And in Canada, we have the CDIC, which is, it's basically the same thing. It's just that some of the insurable amounts are different. So it's typically $100,000 per person per institution or $100,000 per couple. So if you have a married couple, just as an example, you could have as much as $300,000 covered under CDIC requirements per institution. That's right. right. Because in Canada, each different type of account 
will carry the same $100,000 insurance. So an RSP account is treated as a separate account from a non-registered or like just a regular bank account, which is treated differently, as you mentioned, from a joint account. Yeah, yeah. So what did the U.S. government do last week? They actually did something good. They said, we're going to cover every deposit in excess of $250,000. So they're making all the depositors whole. As we started this this show with, though, it's the bondholders and stockholders that are going to be left with little to nothing, right? And people will line up on different side of the argument, but many people will say, hey, if the bank's insolvent, then, you know, as is the case with any insolvency of any corporation, it's very often the shareholders that get wiped out and the bondholders that maybe collect 30 cents on the dollar or something. And, and that's the nature of risk by investing in, in a corporation, regardless of how, how sound you think it might be. Yeah. And so this is an extreme example. This was a bank run on steroids, I would say. But more recently, some other banks that were, have been impacted would, as you mentioned, Washington Mutual, Wachovia, and others during the global financial crisis, right? So, so Washington Mutual, let's talk about that one because we've just spent a lot of time talking about Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank had something like over $209 billion in assets as of December, 2022. That's only three months ago, right? Well, Washington Mutual actually had $310 billion in assets during the time of its failure back in 2008. And it was the largest bank failure in US history. And its collapse was caused by a number of factors, things like a poor housing market, rapid expansion, et cetera, right? Like, we don't want to get into all the painful things of the global financial crisis, but it suffered greatly because of that time period. And, you know, everyone says right now Silicon Valley Bank is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Washington Mutual continues to be the largest. Yeah, and it was actually bought by J.P. Morgan Chase for about $1.9 billion. So maybe we should talk about that a little bit. So a bank fails or a company fails. doesn't have to be a bank, right? doesn't mean another company can't come in and buy them up on pennies on the dollar. And, of course. And just start reopening or reoperating them at some date, right? So Exactly. I mean, the same thing happened like with Bear Stearns and things like that. That's right. And, and usually in those scenarios, I mean, the acquiring bank usually comes in and acquires both the assets and many of the liabilities of the bank that failed. And so it's why the existing shareholders of the bank that has become insolvent really don't expect to see any any recovery whatsoever. However, there may be some recovery for the bondholders because that may be part of the acquisition deal. Yeah, and just that capitalization structure that I know we've gone through in previous episodes, like, you know, if a company goes insolvent, it's bondholders that get paid first. Exactly. And it's shareholders that probably don't get paid anything, right? right? Mm -hmm. But the other one we mentioned was Wachovia Bank. So here's the difference. Wachovia Bank, it had a bank run where it had $15 billion over a two-week period leave its doors. You're talking about Silicon Valley Bank having $40 billion in 24 hours. I don't know who can withstand that, right? But again, the FDIC did cover a majority of those balances at Wachovia Bank. So so those deposit insurance corporations, be it in Canada or the US or other countries for that matter, I mean, they're there for a reason, right? Because as much as this bank run is fresh on our minds, as we mentioned, there have been 563 banks that have failed. Yes, exactly. Just in the US. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's why it's been so important for government and government and policy and regulations to try to prevent bank runs, 
Okay, so you talked about one of the things that that the federal government did after the Great Depression was create, you know, the FDIC or the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to give some confidence to depositors, okay, that their money is safe, it is protected, and they should not fear the bank failure because it's that fear that causes the bank run. It's not, in many cases, not an actual issue. Okay, and the other thing that has been going on lately, and and you've seen it coming out of the global financial crisis, is steps that the governments take to diminish the risk of future bank runs, which you talked about, and that is changing, first of all, establishing, and then changing reserve requirements, which mandate that the banks maintain a certain percentage of total deposits, you know, on hand as cash or securities available to be sold. Now, there's an issue with this, though. There's a current issue with this I was just thinking about because I can't remember, was it the Frank Dodd Bank Act in 2010 or something Mm -hmm. like that? And that was put in place because of the global financial crisis? That's right. But in 2018, some of those requirements were changed. Exactly. Some of the regulations, particularly dealing with community and regional banks, were eased up. It was the administration at the time felt that the requirements were too onerous for some of these smaller banks, not the large banks that everybody knows in the U.S. that were deemed too big to fail, but rather these smaller community and, and regional banks. And and so the requirements for uh, regular monthly stress tests, for example, to test the solvency of a bank on a regular basis, those were eliminated for some of these smaller banks. Mm-hmm. Well, the thinking may well have been right at the time, But once again, you know, trying to predict outcomes is not always that easy. And here's Silicon Valley Bank, which arguably is is a regional bank. But, you know, with 200 and some billion dollars in assets, most people today would argue that that bank should have been subject to more regulation in terms of things like stress tests and what have you. There's some great movies that have this storyline. And I know you got a few other things you want to get through, but there's a movie called Margin Call. Oh, yeah. You've seen Margin Call. I have not seen it. No? Oh, you got to watch it. Very good. Very good. It's it's the same story, but it's just from 2008. I can't remember the other one right now. So go on with this. Well, the only thing I wanted to finish up with, because we're reaching the end of our time here, is just that a lot of, you know, as we've talked about, a lot of these bank runs happen because of a lack of confidence. And in the case of the banking sector, there's quite an interesting dichotomy between the need for transparency and the need for instilling confidence. And I've read some articles that claim that part of Silicon Valley Bank's problem was that they were so transparent about going out needing to raise more capital and announcing that they were unsuccessful in raising capital. That is a real vote of non-confidence or a show of non-confidence that translated itself into creating even more fear and even more desire by depositors to pull their cash out before it was too late. And so in some ways the transparency of of Silicon Valley Bank with regards to their issues actually helped to create the problem that ultimately took them down. Sure. And again, maybe a difference between a bank run in 1930 and a bank run today is that quite often it's what's called a silent bank run. Yeah. Nobody has to line up at the bank and try to pull their money out in cash. You know, these things are done electronically with a push of a couple of buttons. You can transfer all of your assets from one bank to another. Yeah. So, yeah, as you say, no more lining up. Right? No. All right. I don't know. Is there anything else we want to no, go through I think, on No, I think we just wanted to maybe go through a little bit of detail around what happened specifically with Silicon Valley Bank and in general what some of the, some of the risks are, 
with regards to things like bank runs and and hopefully hopefully instill some confidence that the fact that both in the states and in Canada the banks particularly the large banks and in Canada specifically banks are highly regulated stress test and most people's deposits are are very secure and there will be some i think the term is contagion from this right like there will be some spread but we're not viewing this as 2008, 2009. Not this at is all. a much more one-off scenario than that, or so we hope, right? Exactly. That's what we hope. And when this comes out on March 22nd, I guess we'll find out what happened with the U.S. Federal Reserve and its interest rate announcement. Exactly. We can talk about that in, in another show. All right. Till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.